Thank you, worship team. I love the line two songs back that says, pulled from the miry clay. Pulled me from the miry clay, and all that I could say was hallelujah. Amen to that. All right, uh, I'm looking around for any Bloomsday shirts. Don't show us yet. Okay? Raise your hand if you have ever heard of Bloomsday. Okay, if you haven't, you haven't turned your TV on in the last, like, I don't know, 30 years. Raise your hand if you've ever done Bloomsday. Okay? Raise your hand if you've ever won Bloomsday. <laughs> Just want to see if we were paying attention this morning. I did not do Bloomsday. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> That's it, John. I didn't do it. Well, let me tell you how I'm going to win if I don't do it. I'm going to cheat. I did a race a week ago, and it was actually last Sunday that I was flying back from that race in Texas. Elena mentioned I was in Texas. Uh, took off from Houston, I don't know, after the first delay, around 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. And then by the time I got to Vegas, had a seven and a half hour layover. Vegas just isn't nice to me. Okay, two layovers at Vegas. I, I, the wheels touched down about 2 a.m., um, so is that early Monday morning, late Sunday night, early Monday morning, 2 a.m., um, hadn't really slept much and kind of crawled, rolled, limped because the blisters on my feet out to baggage claim and uh, got my bike and got my checked bag and started hobbling out towards the Concourse C parking lot. Do you know it? It's one of the outdoor parking lots. I paid the extra $2 a night so that I wouldn't have to walk even farther but I was lugging like 100 pounds of bike and bag out there. And as I'm getting out there, by that time, it's 2.30 in the morning, okay? I'm tired. I'm cranky. Uh, I know I'm getting up in about three hours to start my Monday work day. And I just, I'm, I'm breathing harder and sweating more than I did the day before because of that bike and that bag. And I look up and I see this gentleman, an older gentleman, crossing the street very close to Concourse C. If you know the, the airport at Spokane, you know there's no crosswalk right there. It's dark. This is where people come flying in really, really fast. Well, I saw him walking, kind of shuffling along, looked a lot like me at that point, uh, carrying two bags that were probably midweight, but that he was really struggling to keep his grip on. And I saw him looking around like he didn't remember where he parked his car. Me neither. <laughs> me, I thought, somebody else is out here just like me, right? I knew which lot I parked it in, and I eventually found it. I uh, had to go up and down a couple of rows, but I did find it, loaded the bike, loaded the bag, got in the car. Luckily, the car started. That's always a concern, especially at 2.30 in the morning. Started driving towards the little exit gate, and I look up and I saw the guy again. Okay? He had crossed from the other side into Lot C, looked around the lot where I had parked, was, uh, had gone to the other part, like Lot C has two parts to it, and looked around, and now he was on his way back across the busy street. So I did what every good Christian would do. I rolled my window down and said, hey, buddy, you lost your car? Uh-huh. I'll be praying for you. <laughs> Has that become society's go-to when we see a need? Right? Thoughts and prayers. When we see a tangible need like food or clothing, I'll be praying for you. We see an emotional lead like depression or loneliness. I'll be thinking about you. Yeah, right? When, when, if there's a natural disaster, violence in America, when the newscasters sign off at night at the end of their broadcast, what do they say? Our thoughts and prayers are with you. When you see an old guy wandering around the Spokane airport at 2.30 in the morning, when you're already tired and cranky, what do you do? Thoughts and prayers. 
Hmm. Before you get up and walk out, I didn't just do that. I saw a couple people getting ready to throw their keys at me. Okay, I was looking for rotten tomatoes, but I'm not going to tell you what I did until just a little bit more. Uh, I've been sitting with this idea of mercy for the last five months. Uh, Lena said we're going to start a series on mercy. We absolutely are going to start that. Uh, it, it, it started sitting with me in December when I read a book by Tara Beth Leach called Radiant Church. 200-page book, and about five of those pages in that book, she talked about mercy and kind of talked about what it looked like and how it played out, and she defined it. And ever since then, I've just been sitting with it, right? And that's part of why we asked you guys to define mercy, because I want to hear your definition of it. And if you haven't texted in, go ahead and text it in really quick, because I only got four answers, which is fine. Um, but as I sat with her definition, her explanation of it, I realized, wow, this is different than what I have thought mercy of. And I'm not going to be one who stands up here and, re and changes definitions. I've gotten talked to in my office by people before when I did that. <laughs> Pastor, I need to talk to you. They, they don't like it when I change definitions, but I want to expand our definition. Here comes a few more texts. I feel it on my watch. Um, this idea of mercy, been sitting with it for five months. You guys get to sit with me for the next four months, the four weeks, not four months. <laughs> a long series. Next four weeks. Whoo, I almost fell out of a chair. I almost didn't make a chair this morning. It's been a rough one already. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go somewhere. Oh, Lord, thank you for a, a group of people that uh, allows me to stand in front of them, open your story, and uh, share it with them. Lord, I know that I am learning this right alongside them, and I ask that as I teach today, you would open my ears to hear what, uh, what you want to say. Do the same for the others in the room as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, grab your Bible. It's a paper Bible. Great. Little brown book under the seat in front of you. If you open up your app or your Audible, whatever, wherever you get God's Word, grab it and turn to Matthew chapter 9. I've been sitting with this idea of mercy specifically in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we're starting this new series that we are titling Mercy More Than Thoughts and Prayers. Mercy More Than Thoughts and Prayers. Now, according to uh, dictionary.com, the definition of mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Catch that? Okay, I haven't read your definitions yet, but I'm going to in just a second. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone with whom it is in one's power to punish or harm. All right, let's see how, how these line up. Randy, thank you, said, God does not give me the penalty I deserve. That's mercy. That is. Art and Shirley, getting some, uh, oh, that was from last month, giving someone else the last scoop of ice cream. Where you at, Art? Good answer last month. This month. Uh, getting what you don't deserve. Very good, very good. Joel, um, mercy is not getting the punishment that we deserve. I don't know if that was Joel or Joy. I think they come through on the same one. That was Joy, okay? Joel said, mercy is I pity you, yet I show compassion. That's good. Uh, Melody, mercy is getting better than we deserve. We're kind of hearing a common theme here, right? It's fitting in with this definition from dictionary.com. Uh, Ryan, mercy is unearned or undeserved kindness. You guys are good. Um, Amanda says mercy is to forgive. 
Very true. Very true. And Ryan, mercy is not receiving what we believe we deserve. Very good. Common theme. All right. Um, Tara Beth Leach, in her book, Radiant Church, writes that mercy is something one does. Okay? Mercy is something one does, and acts of mercy are almost always inconvenient. Being merciful is almost always an interruption. It's almost always required Jesus to stop what he was doing, to go out of his way, to give up free time, to give up energy, to give up emotion. And a few sentences later, Leach gives her definition of mercy. And this is the one that kind of grabbed me. And I'm not redefining, I'm just expanding. Okay? Her definition is this. Mercy is the act of partnering with God in delivering someone from their need. That's rich, huh? All the other definitions are absolutely 100% correct, okay? You guys are right in what you sent in. And so is uh, dictionary.com. But to expand this a little bit more, maybe it goes beyond just God giving mercy to us, but us giving mercy to others. Mercy is the act of partnering with God in delivering someone from their need. That's what I've been sitting with over the last five months. So partnering requires action. And therefore, mercy requires action. So if we're thinking of it in terms of partnership with God and setting somebody free from their need, let's look at some of the ways that the author Matthew uses mercy in his gospel. Matthew chapter 3, verse, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 7, read it with me. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Okay, it seems like it could fit in our normal definition. Jesus here was quoting an Old Testament prophet. He said in chapter 12, verse 7, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not sacrifices. Interesting, which also would fit into our normal definition. In chapter 18, Jesus is telling the story of a ruler who forgave a very large debt, and the person he forgave went out and didn't show that same mercy. The ruler said, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had mercy on you? And I, I kind of like this last one because Jesus is railing against the religious leaders of the day. The pastors, priests, and teachers of the day, like me, he would have been having, having a hard time with. He says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, you hypocrites? For you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You, do not, you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Jesus thinks that mercy is pretty important. You can see from that last verse. Now, in Matthew's gospel, guess how many times uh, he uses the word mercy? Just guess. Not a hard question. 38, okay, close, but a lot less. 13, okay, getting closer. I'll give you one more guess. It's minus three. Did somebody say 10? That's a great guess. Ten times in Matthew's gospel. You just saw four of them. There's a fifth time in the, that's one of the same verses. And then the other five times Jesus uses mercy in his gospel are four different stories where people are crying out to Jesus for mercy. And we're going to look at one of those today. And then the other three times the next three weeks. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 26. What I saw very clearly in this text is this. Mercy gains traction through action. Mercy gains traction through action. It's a little Dr. Seuss. I understand that. But I want you to say it with me. Mercy gains traction through action. 
I guess when I say say it with me, it's hard. So short phrase, say it with me, we'll say it at the same time. Mercy gains traction through action. Oh, thank you. It's up on the screen. You're good. You are very good. All right, Matthew chapter 9, verse 26. Let's put this in context really quick. Matthew chapter 1 and 2, Jesus is born. His lineage is laid out in all of the text that we see around Christmas. Matthew chapter 3 and 4, John the Baptist yells out, Jesus is coming. Jesus comes, he gets baptized, he goes into the, into the wilderness, he gets tempted, he comes back, he starts his official ministry. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon Jesus preached. And in that we see, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. All right, that's uh, 5 through 7. 8 and 9, if you're reading Matthew, you see a lot of miracle stories, a lot of healings that Jesus does. Okay? Halfway through chapter 9, Jesus looks at this tax collector. Some people call him Levi. We call him Matthew. And he said, hey, come follow me. Be my disciple. We believe Matthew's the guy who wrote this, this life story of Jesus that we're going to be looking through. All right, so Matthew says, you bet. Come on, I'm going to throw a party for you, Jesus. And he invites all of his friends, friends that would have liked tax collectors, which weren't too many people back then. All right, but he had a full house, and the religious leaders of the day were not happy that Jesus had a full house full of people that they weren't too pleased with. Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. But when, Jesus, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? It's a New Living Translation. I realize they took some liberties in that. Uh, word for word, it says tax collectors and sinners. But that's how they saw uh, that's how the Pharisees saw them. Oh, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. We saw that in chapter 12 up there earlier. For I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. What if we put Tara Beth Leach's definition in that verse? I want you to partner with God in delivering someone from their need and not just go through the motions. Not just go to church. Not just give your sacrifices. I want you to partner with God in delivering somebody from their need. Broadens the definition of mercy, doesn't it? Okay, we're getting close to our text. Last half of chapter 9, Jesus has this discussion on fasting. A synagogue leader comes up to him and says, my daughter just died. Can you come and, and raise her? And Jesus says, yeah, let's go. So they start walking there. As the inter Jesus is interrupted by a lady who'd been bleeding for 12 years. He heals her, makes it to the house, raises the dead girl from dead back to life. And we get to our text. You still with me? Okay, you're wondering what I did at the airport, right? I'm going to get there. Matthew chapter 9, verse 26 to 31. Just after Jesus raised the dead, the, the girl from the dead. The report of this miracle swept through the entire countryside. After Jesus left the girl's home, two blind men followed along behind him, shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying, and Jesus asked them, Do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. Then he touched their eyes and he said, because of your faith, it will happen. Then their eyes were opened and they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone about this. But instead they went out and spread his fame throughout all the region. What did the, uh, what did the blind men shout to Jesus? In whatever translation, it's going to be very similar. So what did they shout? Son of David, have mercy on me. 
We don't know for how long they shouted. We don't know how long they shouted. We don't know how many times they shouted, but that's what they shouted. Son of David, have mercy on us. Mercy gains traction with action. This phrase, son of David, is actually a messianic prophetic phrase. Uh, in the Jewish scriptures, in, in Isaiah and a couple other places, there was, there was prophets that said the, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to deliver Israel, and he's going to come from the line of David. So anytime in Matthew's gospel, when we see somebody yelling out, son of David, they are shouting this prophetic, like, we believe you're the one that the prophets talked about. We think you're that person. And right after Jesus heals this, like raises this dead girl back to life, these blind men are like, wonder if it's him. I don't know if they had been following him before. I don't know if they had just heard through the open window that Jesus brought her back to life. But it says, as he left, the blind men started to follow. Now, they very well may have been aware of the text in Isaiah that this, uh, this prophetic, messianic, Davidic statement comes from. Isaiah 35, verse 4 through 6. God says through Isaiah, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. He will unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Perhaps these blind men knew that prophecy and they had hope. Or perhaps they had already followed all of what Jesus was doing and knew he could heal and they were bound to ask him. Or perhaps they knew what John's disciples heard Jesus say when John sent his disciples to say, are you the one? Okay, John's disciples sent sent them to Jesus to say, are you the one that's the Messiah? And Jesus said this in Luke chapter 7. At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits. He restored sight to the blind. And then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Tell him God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Son of David, have mercy on me. How did they know that he was this prophetic Messiah? I don't know, but they were yelling out this phrase and they were asking for mercy. Mercy gains traction through action. This is a short text, and if you, if you ever just like dig into it, you realize there's some, some odd and almost humorous things in it. You notice that right away, Jesus doesn't respond to these guys. Again, we don't know how long he was walking. He walked far enough to leave the house of the synagogue leader to get to the house he was staying in, which many people think it was in Capernaum. I don't know where he was at or where he was going, but, but they, they must have yelled for a long time. All right? And Jesus doesn't respond to them until they follow him into his house. We don't know if Jesus invited them in, but if you had somebody following you, yelling at you for perhaps miles, would you want them to come into your house? I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. So at this point, Jesus finally exhausted, turns around and says, fellas, I heard you. Right? I'm going to tell you what. I'll be thinking about you. I will pray for you. I've had a couple of chapters in my life of lots of miracles, and I'm tired, so I need a break. Peace out, Girl Scout. Thoughts and prayers. No? You can't tell me no. That's not what Jesus says. Did you know, and you can search me on this, but more search Tara Beth Leach because it's in her book. Jesus never once says, I'll be praying for you. I'm not saying praying for people is wrong. I'm going to come back to this, okay? 
But not once does he say, I'll be praying for you. I'm saying mercy gains traction through action. Jesus took action. Here's why. It's what the guys were asking for. It's what the guys were asking for. So often we can think of mercy as a noun for all those English teachers that are out there. Um, I wasn't great at English. My dad helped me a lot. I can speak it fairly good. Um, But mercy is traditionally a noun. You look up in Webster's Dictionary what mercy is, and the first like five definitions of it are a noun. These guys weren't asking for a noun. Jesus, just give us a person, place, or thing. They weren't saying that. Glenn Stason, in his book, Sermon on the Mount, says, mercy is compassion in action. Mercy is a verb. At least it is here. Let me show you in the Greek, because I know Greek backwards and forwards, and I know the right places to look to actually explain it to me. It's the truth of the matter. On the top, we've got eleos. Say that with me. Eleos. You guys know Greek? Cool. That's the word for, for, word for noun. Uh, it's a word for a noun called mercy. It's a word for mercy, which is a noun. This is most often the word that's used in the Greek. Eleos. But if you are reading in the Greek, you'll see that the two blind men did not cry out eleos. They cried out eleo. Just to make sure I was pronouncing it right. Eleo. Say that with me. Eleo. Good. You guys are wonderful. Eleo. This is a verb. All right, so in our text, we see after Jesus left the girl's home, two blind men followed, shouting, Son of David, have mercy, take action on us. And Jesus turns around to them and says, do you really think that I can make you see? What he's asking is, do you believe I can do something for you more than just thoughts and prayers? Do you believe I can take action for you? Do you believe I can partner with God to help you in your need, to deliver you? Do you believe I can show you more than just a noun, but a verb? And what did they say? Yes, we believe. It was after they believed that Jesus then took action. Okay, verse 28, yes, Lord, we, they told him, we do believe. So Jesus then gains traction by action. He touched their eyes. Because of your faith, it will happen. And their eyes were opened and they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone about this. But instead, they went out and spread his fame all over the region. Jesus took action. He touched them. He asked them a question, touched them, cured them. He didn't just say, I'll be praying for you. I do have to chuckle. Here's the humorous part in this this, uh, passage. Jesus just rocked their world, right? He transformed it. He gave them sight. He let them, like, like, he changed everything for them. And the first thing they go and do is disobey him. (laughs) He sternly warned them, don't tell. He looked them in the eyes, and they could see him back for the first time. Don't tell anybody. So they went and told everybody, right? They got on their camel in their car. They rolled down their windows and everybody that they could tell, he showed us mercy. He showed us mercy. He partnered with God to deliver us from our need. Now, they probably didn't have camels. Absolutely didn't have cars. But speaking of rolling down windows, okay? It was 2.30 in the morning, late Sunday night, early Monday morning. I had wheeled my bike and my bag to the car, got him in, saw the old gentleman looking lost and confused. Um, again, I, uh, wow. Um, went and I paid. Parking gate went up, went back down, and then he's right there about to cross the street again. So I rolled down my window for the younger ones in here that's used to 
how we used to do it. Okay? Now it's, I rolled down my window and I said to him, hey, you, you look a little lost. Having trouble finding your car? Uh-huh. You want some help? You know, he looked at my car. He looked at me. So yeah, that's how I met Reuben from Othello. Reuben was 74 years old, had just turned 74 the day before, had gone down to Vegas to celebrate his birthday with some friends who met him there. He said, uh, last time I came to Spokane Airport was mid-1990s. Things have changed. <laughs> yes, they have, my new friend Reuben. Yes, they have. What do you remember? What color is your car? It's white. Okay, what kind is it? He told me what kind it was. What do you remember when you parked, however many days before? There was a sign with a three on it. Okay. That helps. Anything else? Um, I think there was like one of those shelters or something because I took a shuttle. Okay, that, that helps. You're, you're not going to take a shuttle from here. Anything else? Mm -mm. Is it in the parking garage? I'm pretty sure it's not. Okay? So do you want to get in and want some, want some help? Mm -hmm. So we got in and we drove around two different parking lots for 10-ish minutes until we found his car, which was right by a sign that just had a three on it. Four spaces from a parking lot shuttle shelter. I made sure he got in his car, made sure it started. Um, and at that point, prayed. Thank you, God, for that opportunity. Now, I don't share this story to say, look at James and how good James is. I, God will give 100 of those opportunities to me. I'll miss 99 of them, seriously. Okay? But this is, this is one of those that just dropped in my lap and God opened my tired eyes. Okay? He opened my tired heart. I haven't picked somebody up since the spring of 1998, and I picked that guy up outside of Belgrade, okay? So it's been a little while since I picked somebody up in the car, but for some reason, God just kept nudging and said, you need to help him. Neither Reuben nor I use this word, but mercy is what took place. God opened my eyes to partner with him to help this guy in need. So here's my question for you guys. Could I have just prayed and driven off? Yeah, I absolutely could have. And sometimes prayer is the only thing that we can do. It really is. There are times when that is the thing God calls us to do. Whether it's our age and stage in life, whether it's the crisis around the world, sometimes he just says pray. But there's other times where we just want to have thoughts and prayers, but God says, I want you to take a step. As I said earlier, mercy almost always is an interruption. It's almost always inconvenient. I could have got 14 more minutes of sleep Monday night. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to sleep because I would have been wondering about that guy wandering around the parking lot. Here's what I would love for us to do this week. We're expanding the definition of mercy beyond what you guys sent in because those were 100% accurate to include mercy being a partnership with God and delivering somebody from their need. I want to challenge all of us to look for and ask God for opportunities to show mercy this week. Look for ways that we can tangibly partner with God to deliver somebody of their need. And then, do me a favor, call somebody and tell them that you did it. Not because you're bragging on yourself, not because you want to like stand in front of people and tell them you, you helped Reuben from Othello, but because when you get to partner with the God of the universe, there's something amazing about that. And to be able to share it with somebody else may allow them to think, ah, I can do that too. Mercy, more than thoughts and prayers. Will you ask God to give you an opportunity for mercy this week with me? Yeah? All right. Let's pray then.
Jesus, I don't know how many times throughout my life I've cried out for mercy to you. And I know countless times you have responded as a reminder of, look at the mercy my Father has given you where you aren't getting what you deserve. The sins that separate you from the Father, I have allowed that to, to be, I've allowed that gap to close. I thank you for that understanding, that definition of mercy. Lord, I pray that we would never forget that. Lord, I also realize you're calling us as people of faith to partner with you. 2.30 in the morning, Reuben from Othello needed James, and I thank you that you shook me awake enough to see that. Lord, we're living in a world that is full of people wandering around in the dark, lost, looking for what they don't know. But ultimately, they're looking for you, and I pray that you would help us see opportunities to partner with you and point them towards you. When we do that, when you give us opportunities and when we take the, the courage, have the courage to step out, uh, I, I pray that you would be brought glory and honor and praise. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,